Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features, get your free mind snack now. Hi, welcome to Bookie. Today we will unlock, The Sea Wolves, A History of the Vikings. This book tells the story of how a group of seafaring bandits swept across Europe and ushered in a legendary era. In the year 793 CE, ships with dragons and snakes on their prows appeared on the north coast of England, sneaking up on the island where the famous Lindisfarne Priory was located. The invaders jumped onto the shore and broke down the monastery gates. They beheaded every monk, tore down the gorgeous tapestries, and raised the altars. The island was instantly littered with bodies and stained with rivers of blood. This massacre happened so suddenly that it took everyone by surprise. In the 8th century, a group of strong European rulers had risen up, so the entire western part of the continent had a strong sense of security, and people lived rather stable lives in the early Middle Ages. England flourished as well, monasteries were popping up regularly and Lindisfarne Priory was an outstanding example. It was home to countless treasures of great value, attracting pilgrims and boosting local trade. Viking merchants spread the word of the prosperity of the region back to their own homeland. At the end of the 8th century, a group of blonde, blue-eyed Vikings jumped out of their dragon boat, covered the monastery in blood, and took all of its precious possessions. This disaster in the midst of a peaceful time shocked the local people, and it also had a huge impact on all of Europe, if the heart of English Christianity could fall, then surely no one was safe. The Viking invasions of Europe's nations, both coastal and further inland, continued for 300 years, which is known as the Viking Age in Europe. With all this background information, what is your first impression of the Vikings? You might think of them as a bunch of well-armed and ferocious pirates. But this view is not complete. The term Viking comes from Northern Europe between the 8th and 11th centuries. Vik means a river bend or bay in Old Norse, and the term originally referred to the Vik district near Oslofjord. It later came to refer to marauders throughout the Scandinavian peninsula. In the 8th century, today's nations of Norway, Sweden and Denmark had not yet been founded, and they were still very wild. In the northern part of Europe, Scandinavia has year-round snow cover, cold weather, and a shortage of farmland. Under these difficult conditions, the locals invented many competitive sports to strengthen the body, forming personalities that upheld power and looked down on cowardice. Because the Vikings continuously explored the sea, their shipbuilding industry was very advanced, and the Viking longship came into being. With their slender hulls and incomparable speed, they looked like a prowling wolf pack, hence the name Sea Wolf. This shipbuilding revolution gave the Vikings an unmatched advantage at sea, and these ships were the key to the Viking Age. The Lindisfarne event marked the beginning of the Viking Age, which spanned three centuries. How did the Vikings sweep across Europe? How did they take hold of and meld with every place they went? Were there any positive effects? Next, let's take a look at this book's content in three parts. Part 1 How did the Viking Sea Wolves sweep across Europe? Part 2 Why are Vikings known as the pioneers of medieval Europe? Part 3 Why is the Vikings' destruction seen as positive? Part 1 How did the Viking Sea Wolves sweep across Europe? Why did the Vikings start expanding outward in the late 8th century? Although there is much speculation, there's no consensus. One clue may come from Viking stories that have been handed down to us, telling of a warrior who was fighting hard far from home, earning money, then building magnificent buildings and generously sharing the bounty with his followers. 
This story reflects the Vikings' yearning for glory and kingship that inspired young members to flock to Scandinavia's southern and eastern fertile lands, from the Frankish kingdoms to Ireland, from England to Constantinople. According to the direction of attack, these invasion paths can be divided into southern, eastern, and western routes. Let's start with the first part of our deep dive, seeing how the Viking sea wolves swept across the continent along the southern, eastern, and western fronts. First, the southern front, the conquest of the Franks. Legend says that in the late 8th century, the Frankish king Charlemagne was touring the coast of France, when several Viking ships suddenly appeared on the sea. Charlemagne was acutely aware that these men were fierce foes, and at the thought of these uninvited visitors daring to invade his kingdom in his own lifetime, he wept uncontrollably. Anticipating the danger Vikings would pose to the empire, Charlemagne spent years building defenses against the Vikings and expanding his territory. When the brilliant Charlemagne extended Frankish territory to the northern Europe, becoming neighbors with Denmark, the Vikings felt extremely threatened. After Charlemagne's death, the empire lost its strong leader, and the Frankish kingdoms gradually fell apart. The Vikings grew in power, soon beginning to harass their powerful neighbor. At first, the Vikings made some small exploratory raids on the Francia. As the Viking numbers swelled, they not only pillaged, but also built forts in the areas they invaded as bases, from which to launch raids further. At that time, a Viking general named Ragnar Lothbrok rose to power. He was not an ordinary pirate, but one of the first sea kings. In 845, Lothbrok led a Viking army from Denmark in attacking Paris. Why did Lothbrok choose Paris? Medieval Paris was an island of great wealth on the Seine River, so it was an ideal target for the Vikings. Vikings swarmed into Paris's vulnerable heart, raiding every street in the city. Despite 50 years of plundering the rich European continent, they had never taken such a large sum. The king of the Franks, Charles the Bald, was forced to sign an armistice with Lothbrok, which allowed the Vikings to leave with their treasure and made the Franks pay 6,000 pounds of gold and silver. However, paying this money did not eliminate the threat, but instead attracted more Vikings. While the Danes were carving up the Frankish kingdoms, the Norwegians had their sights set on Ireland. The Vikings opened the door to England through their invasion of Ireland. Next, we'll discuss the Western Front, the invasion of Ireland, and the siege of England. From the coast to the interior, from small-scale probes to large and efficient attacks, the Vikings launched countless raids on resource-rich, Golden Age Ireland. In 836, Thorgils the Devil stepped onto the scene. He burned, pillaged and occupied monasteries, taking control of every aspect of Irish society. As a notorious pirate in the eyes of the Irish, he had a glorious combat record. In 841, he founded Dublin, the first Viking city in Western Europe, which soon became the most important trading port in the Viking world. From this base, Thorgil sacked almost every holy place in Ireland. Ten years later, the entire Irish nation was in danger of collapsing. When the Vikings learned of richer lands to the east, they decided to invade England. Starting in the 830s, the Vikings changed their tactics, increased their attacks on England beyond small raids. The Viking invasion of England was divided into three stages. In the first phase, the Vikings took three kingdoms with ease. The Vikings were commanded by Ivar, the general Churchill called the best of both worlds. He was invincible at war and affluent in life. England was divided politically into four great powers and three smaller ones at that time. The strongest was the Kingdom of Mercia in the Midland. 
The other three large powers were Northumbria in the north, East Anglia on the east coast, and Wessex in the southwest. In the course of a few brief battles, the Vikings learned two important things, firstly, there was still untold wealth await them to plunder, secondly, the armies of the English kingdoms were not to be feared. In 865, Ivor led his great heathen army to launch the largest invasion of the British Isles ever recorded, and soon conquered the kingdoms of Northumbria, Mercia and East Anglia, leaving England with only Wessex. In the Viking invasion's second phase, Wessex turned the tide. With Wessex, England's only independent kingdom left, the Vikings thought they were on the verge of conquering England. But this time, the situation was reversed, the invincible Viking army met stiff resistance. The Wessex army was weak but unkillable. At the Battle of Reading, the English were in disarray, but just four days later, they turned around and beat the Vikings back. King Alfred of Wessex was behind this. In a difficult back and forth, he took advantage of the Vikings' deficiencies, drawing them into guerrilla warfare and weakening them. In 878, Alfred went on the offensive and won the Battle of Eddington, which turned the tables. The Vikings' ambition to conquer all of England was halted. But in the third stage, England would eventually fall under Vikings' rule. In the 11th century, England had recovered from the great heathen army's destruction, and Alfred's descendants had built a stable and prosperous England. But in 1013, the Vikings invaded England again. This time they succeeded, and the Viking king Nut was crowned England's first Viking king. While the Danes and Norwegians attacked from the southern and western borders, the Swedish Vikings, also from Scandinavia, looked in another direction, across the Baltic Sea and into the forests. Next, let's cover the Eastern Front and the attack on Byzantium. In 862, Kiev was captured by a Viking named Rurik, known as the founding father of the modern states of Russia, Belarus, and the Ukraine. To the south of Kiev was Constantinople, the world's largest city at the time and a city of gold ruled by the still-famous Julius Caesar. The Swedes in the east were called the Russ, and their first contact with Constantinople was in 838. When a convoy of Russ arrived in Constantinople, they marveled at the wealth of the city, especially at the triply fortified walls, which were so heavily guarded that they were impregnable. Logically, such an exceptionally tight defense would keep most forces from invading. But the Rus were not intimidated. They built a fleet of 200 ships and sailed into the Black Sea. No one had dared to launch a major attack on the city before, so when the Rus arrived at Constantinople with their dragon boats full of fierce warriors, the Byzantines were caught off guard. At that time, their emperor was leading an army against the Abbasid in Asia Minor, the streets were empty, and the whole city was suddenly paralyzed. Luckily, several of the empire's ships reached Constantinople in time to drive the Rus away. The attack not only showed the Rus just how strong Constantinople's defenses were, they attacked while the imperial army was away and still failed, but it also reminded the Byzantines how urgently diplomacy was needed. This new force that had sprung up in the northeast was a problem for them. An agreement was soon signed, and the empire allowed the Rus to do business in Constantinople, something the outlaws had only dreamed of. Over the next century, the Rus attacked Constantinople several times, but failed miserably each time. That's when it became clear to them that they couldn't conquer Constantinople, but the Rus' attacks were great successes in a way that each time they attacked, the empire made a contract with them, and these contracts gave the Rus' great privileges in Constantinople. They did not pay taxes on certain things, and they also had the opportunity to serve as mercenaries in the empire. Today we are just sharing limited content.
To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play, get your free mind snack now.